Our sacrifice of praise that pleases God, accomplishes his purpose. As you know, one of, part of our philosophy of, our, of missions is that whenever one of our missionaries is in town and available to come here, it's, uh, we're all in on those opportunities. So God has given us that opportunity this morning, and we have delighted to hear from Holly. And we have all, by our agreement with our mission's philosophy, decided to sacrifice a little of our time this morning. We are all going to share that this way. Uh, Lest you think I'm the only one who's going to uh, devote some time I plan to preach the whole sermon this morning, and whenever our, uh, our Sunday school classes and adult classes, whenever they get started, I encourage them to use their full time they need to communicate God's word as well. And in that way, we will all share. If uh, dinner is uh, 10 minutes later than usual, I think that's okay. Okay. All right, just wanted to settle that issue and uh, make sure there are no um, unfulfilled expectations uh, in this service this morning. A high school graduate was eager for college to start so she could pursue her passion for writing. Despite her parents' uh, sacrificial efforts to pay for her college, They were not able to cover all the costs, and so she agreed that she would take a job on campus to help do her part. Of course, she was hoping for something that would be right in line with her major and be very fulfilling, but she got a good dose of reality when she received the notice of her work assignment. She was to be a stock-receiving clerk in the campus store. Well, she could hardly imagine a more boring job. Uh, And as she contemplated that, and as she arrived and and, uh, and showed up for her work, from the very first day, she regretted the time that that job took away from her study and from her uh, opportunity to spend time with her friends. The work itself seemed slow and tedious, not to mention irrelevant to everything that mattered in her own life. But she tried to cover up her feelings about that and, and just go about her business and do her job and thought that she was succeeding pretty well. You can sympathize with her dilemma, can't you? Even identify with that, with some past experience you've had. Unfortunately, though, we share her dilemma. We share her dilemma because the work of ministry seems to be an an unwelcome interruption 
to the things that we would rather be doing. If, if you sense a, a need to do something, you have to participate. There is an expectation, after all. Then you, you look for something that would require the least amount of time, the least amount of effort. Uh, all right, and then you can go ahead and do that. That would be okay. But the reality is you'd rather not. Now, that's just human nature, isn't it? It's, it's the way we think. But remember that in Romans 1, 12, 1 and 2, God has already told us that when he saved our soul, he also set us on the path of changing how we think. How we think is a problem. The priorities that matter to us uh, don't very often line up exactly with the priorities that matter to God. As it turns out, the very first specific topic that Paul addresses, having given us that introduction and that call to change how you think, to change how you act, all in relation to serving God, this reasonable service, this uh, spiritual worship of serving him, that the very first topic he addresses as he now gets into the, the greater specifics is this matter of serving God in the church. And by God's grace, we have a, a relatively high percentage of ministry participation among God's people. And we thank God for that. But we have to face the reality that we're not operating at full capacity yet. And we've been striving for that for a long time. There's still work to be done. There's still progress to be made among us. And even among those that are actively involved in serving, we could all be more diligent. We could all be more effective. We all have room to grow. So what is... Romans 12, 3 through 8. What's that have to tell us today about all of this? Well, it tells us a few things that are very important, but I would summarize the truth this way, that God gives each believer, and he's going to make it clear there are no exceptions here. He gives each believer a role in the church. And he calls on us then to serve him in fulfilling that role, whatever that is for you, whatever variety of opportunities that might include for you, that you serve him faithfully. You serve him diligently. First thing we need to change in our thinking about this is to accept in verses 3 through 5 the reality 
that God has assigned a role to you. To you as an individual. To you and God knowing exactly your circumstances, knowing exactly your abilities, and knowing your limitations. Within all of that has assigned a role to everybody. And there are no exceptions. Look at verse 3. Paul says, and, and Paul, in so saying what he's about to declare, is, lets us know that he's fulfilling his role in communicating this to us. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. First thing that needs adjustment in our thinking is in relation to God, how you relate to God himself. And it's amazing that we get confused about this, but the fact is, we do. First part of verse 3, he lets us know again that we possess nothing on our own. The call here is that we not overestimate, would be a, a literal rendering of that, that we not overestimate our value, that we not overestimate our capacity, that we not overestimate our worth to the Lord. In our relationship with him, what do we bring to the table? We bring nothing of value. Paul's call here is for victory over a sin that affects the heart of every one of us. And it's the sin of pride. Pride does great damage to the cause of Christ, to the work of ministry. Pride that would say, I don't think I have to do that. Somebody else can do that job. Uh, I, I need something that more measures up to, uh, to who I am around here. So who are you, really? The right perspective is in relation to God. You're nobody. You don't deserve any special treatment. You don't come with any special abilities on your own. So by the grace of God given to me, Paul says, I say to everyone, don't be thinking about yourself more highly than you ought to think. Now we all, in reading that, need to assume that he means me. He is talking to every one of us here, and it is just not feasible that any of us could accurately look at those words and say, all right, I'll make sure. No, I think I'm good here. I don't think there's any overestimate of myself here. Yes, there is. 
there's a call then here that we need to respond to. To think sensibly would be to think with humility. An accurate sense of how you relate to God. Discern your place in relation to him. The last part of verse 3 is the reminder that you depend wholly on God's grace. To think with sober judgment would be to recognize that uh, all you have is what God has given. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Apparently, there are differences among us in what God bestows and therefore what God expects. The proportion of, and he uses the word faith here, uh, it, it seems to come very close to the concept of God's grace. He dispenses grace and the faith, the trust in him that you need in order to utilize his grace to accomplish what he's assigned to you. He issues then varying degrees, but his expectation is that you utilize the full measure of what he's entrusted to you. That he not get shortchanged, he gave you more faith to, to serve him than you are exercising right now, then it's God that you're depriving. Discern your place in relation to the Lord. But then next he moves directly into discerning your place in relation to the church. And he starts in verse 4 with an analogy. He says, For as in one body we have many members. He's talking about a human body. Human body has many parts. The word members here uh, just means you've got hands, you've got fingers, arms, uh, brain, everything that is part of your sensory perception, everything that's part of making a single body. Now, he's just stating a fact that we can all acknowledge. Uh, the human body depends on diversity. In order to function effectively, you need the parts that God has given. And if through uh, accident or uh, illness, uh, somebody has lost a portion of, of their body, uh, then it, it takes great effort to, uh, to accommodate that. And by God's grace, it, it becomes possible. But all the more does it make us appreciate that every part is important and that every part be functional, every part be willing to fulfill its role, that there be no neglect, no delinquency. The body needs all the parts doing their job. He moves from there then to an important spiritual principle. So we, he says, though many are one body in Christ. 
and individually we are members one of another. Now the concept that the church is in fact the body of Christ, here it's an analogy, but it's an image that he wants us to picture and that he uses in a number of different places in in Paul's writings. But there is a pattern here that helps us understand just what does he have in mind in verse 5. That pattern is that the, the two books, Romans and 1 Corinthians, were both written at roughly the same period in Paul's ministry. And in those two books, when he's describing the church as the body of Christ, his focus is more on the local church. So that the church there in Rome, Paul could say, is, uh, is like one body, in, uh, of a body of, the body of Christ functioning together. Later in his ministry, in fact, when he was in prison in Rome, he wrote the, the letters of Ephesians and Colossians. And there, when he refers to the church as the body of Christ, he's speaking not so much of the local assembly, but of the universal church. But here in Romans, when he can say in verse 5, we, though many, many individuals, are one body in Christ, we're to be thinking about this right here, the local church. He has designed every local assembly, including ours, to function together to accomplish the good of the whole. And what is that whole? That whole is nothing less than the body of Christ. His emphasis, though, shifts between verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, the emphasis is that we have diversity along with unity. He reverses that emphasis in verse 5 when he applies it, and now it is this unity that we have with all of this diversity. We are all members one of another, individually responsible to each other. Responsible in the sense that if, if one member fulfills his responsibility, fulfills his role, accomplishes God's assignment, then everybody else benefits. The whole body benefits from that. But the reverse is also true. One person, through neglect or selfishness or even just oversight, fails to fulfill his responsibility, everybody else suffers. Maybe not catastrophically. Maybe to all outward appearances, things continue on as as you would think they ought to. But something's not working right. Something maybe under under the surface is not getting done and the whole body's affected by that. 
We are members individually of one another. That underscores duty, a responsibility to do your part, discern your place in relation to the church then, uh, these verses emphasize. And realize there is uh, something that God is expecting from you. Turns out that that college freshman wasn't hiding her bad attitude quite as well as she thought. Her co-workers could see it, but perhaps even more significantly, so could her boss. He took the opportunity several times throughout that first semester to encourage her. Uh, He could tell that Her heart was not in her work and tried to encourage her of how important this is and this is serving the whole uh, uh, whole, uh, college community. uh, But he could see that she she just didn't have initiative. She, She clearly would rather not have been there and wasn't seeing much progress. So he finally called her into his office shortly before the Christmas break and said, this really isn't working out too well. He said, if if you can't come back after Christmas with a a better attitude and a better work ethic, he said, I'm going to have to let you go. Well, she protested, but but my father, he, he says, I need to have this job. And this manager responded wisely, maybe you should think about that. This is actually between you and your father. You might want to talk to him about that. That's exactly what she needed to hear. This wasn't the college giving an assignment. Ultimately, this was her father. She decided to go home to him and ask his forgiveness. Ask his forgiveness for squandering the opportunity that she had to be a help in, uh, in him paying for her college. By God's grace, she won a victory that day. There aren't any excuses that are valid. Uh, Some might be able to list some very significant restrictions. Uh, Advancing age, declining health, physical weaknesses. But you know, it's really hard to imagine that there isn't something everyone could do to get to the, what might seem to be ver- the very least, but could be exactly what God expects, even among those with the greatest of restrictions. Even there, just about everybody is able to, say, make a phone call. To call someone else and express concern for what that person is going through. To write a note. 
to utter a prayer. I say that could seem to be the least. But if it's exactly what the person on the receiving end needs, then God receives honor. And the church family, the body of Christ, grows in grace. If those with the greatest restrictions can still accomplish God's purpose, can still fulfill God's assignment, then what about you? Isn't there something for you as well? Well, you know, that does present a challenge, doesn't it? Well, what might that be? It's hard to think of things. And and so Paul is going to help us out with that. He's going to give us uh, some samples. Uh, And he's going to cover a range of things. This is going to be far, far from exhaustive. But his goal is just to give some suggestions and something within that or something in that category Altogether, if you add up all the spiritual gifts that are listed in various places in the New Testament, you come up with about 40-some different items. But they're all just examples. The reality is God probably has over 400 different varieties of, of giftedness that he entrusts to his people, and it could be far, far more than that. Furthermore, there may be one primary area of skill, of aptitude, but there may be several others as well. And it's a combination of those things that God has designed to help you be sensitive to the needs around you and to actually do something positive about those needs. What a great God we have. He can do that. So what's this range here? Well, these all come with an implicit exhortation. That exhortation is designed to go beyond just correcting wrong thinking. Having accepted that God has assigned you a role, to go beyond that would be to realize he also wants you to correct your wrong action, to actually do something, fulfill the role that God, uh, as God has equipped you. Essentially, throughout these next few verses, it's a call to devote your gifts to the work of ministry. And don't even pretend to say, oh, I'm, I'm so humble and I don't even have any gifts. All right, God says that's not true. You've got them. He gave them. Let's find them. Well, here's that sample. Beginning in verse 6, and uh, I, I have to, uh, uh, I almost feel like apologizing about the verse divisions we have in these next couple of verses. And so uh, my reminder again, they are, the verse divisions are not inspired. Uh, I would love to have had the opportunity to rearrange these. Uh, 
Well, in fact, I am taking the opportunity. I mean, here it comes. I'm going to tell you how this should have been, uh, but how we have to understand this. And unfortunately, we're going to be subdividing these verses. So verse 6 starts out well. We'll keep that all together. He says, having gifts, and you do, that differ according to the grace given to us, and God is behind that giving, he distributes the, the, the gifts that he wants every individual to have. These are all gifts of grace. Let us use them. Devote yourself to utilizing what God has entrusted to you. And then here comes the first one. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Your first thought might be, well, that's not happening anymore, right? We don't believe in an ongoing gift of prophecy. Yes, we do. What do you think's going on right now? Doesn't sound very much like a gift, I know, but uh, you know we all have to do the best we can with what God has given. Prophecy we connect with predicting the future, and that I don't claim to be able to do. But more often than that, the word prophecy in Scripture is simply speaking the truth of God's word. Now, understanding it that way and, uh, and seeing how, that same, how this same word gets used in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 really opens our understanding of what Paul means here when he uses the word prophecy. It's not actually a specialized responsibility at all. It can be, but a prophet is simply someone who says what God has revealed, and he has revealed everything here. So you share something with God's, uh, from God's word to somebody else, even one-on-one, according to 1 Corinthians 14, you just prophesied. I don't recommend we start using the word that way. Uh, I have a prophecy for you. Eh, Okay, that sounds weird. It's going to make us all skeptical. But that you have a word from God that comes directly from his word. That's what Paul is talking about. In fact, he makes it clear in 1 Corinthians that Everybody shares this responsibility. You can all prophesy one to another, he says. In particular, though, what he is talking about here is if God gives a gift to do that, and you get the opportunity to declare God's word before more than one person at a time. Uh, and so that can, that can take place in a number of different environments. But if God has, in fact, here's how I want us to understand this today. If you have a speaking gift, if you have a speaking gift, use that gift to whatever extent God has entrusted it to you 
as he says in verse 6, in proportion to your faith. In proportion to what you know to be true. And in proportion to the opportunities that God gives to you, use that gift. If prophecy here stands for any kind of speaking gift where you are communicating truth, then that is an indication that maybe the first item in verse 7 is also a general category. Any kind of speaking gift, and in verse 7 he says, if service in our serving. And in those two categories, Paul has just covered every possibility. They will all fit somewhere in there. Whatever gifts God has given to you, they are either in a speaking category or a serving category or some combination of those two. In fact, those are the very same two categories that Peter identifies in his first letter, 1 Peter 4, 11. He says, everybody's got a gift in one of these two categories, speaking or serving. Paul actually gives us a grammatical indication that that's what he has in mind by the very way he expresses these first two. Uh, he, he expresses them as abstract nouns, if prophecy, if serving. For all the others that come, he expresses them more personally. The one who teaches. The one who, and he goes down the line. These two he expresses differently because they are the, cat, the big categories. And then he's going to go on to some specific examples within each category. So let's, let's just review that. Verse 6, you may have a speaking gift. Speaking truth that edifies others. Use that speaking gift as God gives you opportunity. You may have a serving gift in the first part of verse 7. Then devote yourself and that gift to meet the needs of others. This takes some self-discipline and perseverance to use your gift to the maximum benefit, the maximum benefit of other people. Now we continue in verse 7 as Paul then goes back to the first category. And he says, well, let's just consider a few specific items underneath that category. If you have a speaking gift, one possibility, the end of verse 7, is that it might be the ability to teach. The one who teaches, focus on your teaching. All right, we're going to be moving uh, soon into our, uh, our Bible study time, our Sunday school time, and we'll have children of all ages arriving in their classrooms and looking up at a teacher. The admonition here is if God has given you that opportunity and that ability, then you devote yourself to that. 
We have others that teach on Tuesday afternoon at a public school. Imagine teaching truth in a public school setting. Utilize that opportunity to the fullest in presenting the truth those children need to hear. Exercise your speaking gift. Another possibility is at the beginning of verse 8, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. A teacher is primarily communicating information, truth. An exhorter is calling for change of life. It's applying the truth into everyday circumstances. And if God's given you that gift, we need more of it. To have the insight to know where this should make a difference in my life today. We don't all have that. God has given you that kind of insight, then you can be, and another way of translating that same word, exhort, is you can be an encourager of others to apply God's word in everyday life. And if you get the combination of both communicating truth and exhorting a change in life, God bless you. Use that. Help us out. Strengthen the body of Christ. Exercise your speaking gift. The last three examples are in the other category. The serving gifts. If you've got a serving gift, and these are, again, just samples, but here are some possibilities under the serving category. uh, The second part of verse 8 the one who contributes in generosity. Oh, wait, does that mean I only have to give in the offering if I have a gift to do that? Well, actually, no. (laughs) Surprise. There are some responsibilities we all have to share. See, that even includes speaking the word of God. Uh, a a prophet. We can all prophesy one-on-one. Some can prophesy together. Some have a gift to do it. We all have a responsibility to give in worship to God. God's word makes that crystal clear. But if God has given you a particular gift to do that, exercise that gift, he says. And he's got a particular Uh, goal there, he says, to do so in generosity. Uh, Another angle on that word generosity could be headed more toward the idea of make sure you do it with the right motive. This is not to get attention. This is strictly to honor God. With simplicity of motive and with generosity. All right, that's one example Uh, His second that he lists is the one who leads with zeal. A leader here is simply someone gifted to organize people to accomplish a task and enable them to use their gift more effectively. Essentially, it's the gift of administration. 
And if you can help other people be more effective in what they can do, then lead them. But he says, do that with zeal. Realizing other people are depending on your leadership skills. Uh, They are gifted, but they might not know how to do it and how to coordinate it with other people so that the end result uh, is, uh, is for the best good. So if you have a gift of administration, a gift of leadership, exercise that gift. Do it with diligence. And finally, he says, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Acts of mercy. There is lots of room for participation here. You see somebody in need, unable to help themselves in that category of need, and you could help. Help that person. This is showing mercy here toward the helpless. And this can be helpless in a lot of different ways, but someone who needs your help. Give them that help. But here's the stipulation. Do so with cheerfulness. What's the alternative? Reluctance? Resentment? How's that going to help? To do so with cheerfulness means to be grateful for the opportunity. I'm just utilizing the grace that God has given to me. I get no credit for that. But I'm glad to be useful to God in this way. Again, these are just a few samples. I got to imagine Paul uh, wishes he had leave at this point from the Holy Spirit to add another chapter or two, just listing off all the other possibilities. But the Holy Spirit says, no, that's enough to get our minds working, to get us focused. And yeah, I said, no, I, I have to admit God has given me something. It might not be completely obvious to you as you sit right here, but you know how you can tell? Compare, number one, the things you care about. Things you care about are probably in the area where God has gifted you. But then number two is not just having an ability, it's also seeing an opportunity. So having a sense of your own burden, then look to see where there might be a need for that very thing. It might be a position, one of our teachers, one of our, uh, one of our children's church leaders uh, serving the Lord right now uh, during this service. But it might be no position at all. It might not be an office. It might just be on your own hearing a prayer request, inquiring, how could I help meeting that need? Could be nobody else is even going to know. Wouldn't that be great? Just God.
Years ago, a Baptist church faced a disturbing trend. Their church was stable and even growing in attendance, but fewer and fewer people were willing to serve. It was okay for those ministries that took place during a regularly scheduled service. I mean, they could get guys to usher. And with a little pressure, they could get some ladies to work in the nursery. After all, they're there anyway uh, in the building. But all those ministries that required extra effort extra time. For example, their choir just got smaller and smaller. They expect us to rehearse an hour every week. That's my time. Other ministries were diminishing. The pastors and the deacons met and discussed this on several occasions, exploring options. What are we going to do I finally reached a decision. This was very telling in the history of this particular church. Because what they decided was, rather than address the underlying spiritual issues that were coming to the surface in this way, they just decided to back off on their expectations of member participation which meant they decided to disband the choir and discontinue other ministries that people just really didn't want to give their time to. It required them to hire a number of additional staff members because there were some things that were essential, had to get done. All right, so we'll just pay people to do that, and uh, everybody else is off the hook. You know what was remarkable? Is that that church really started to grow even more after that. Really? Why would that be? Well, think about it. This really pleased people. A low expectation. What's not certain is whether anybody thought to wonder if God was pleased. He, after all, is the one issuing the assignments, distributing the grace to fulfill them, and looking, why aren't they doing it? Why are they hoarding that grace? You see, all this needs a change of thinking. This has to start on the inside. But then, it has to make a difference in ministering to the needs. Think of this of the body of Christ. What is more valuable than that? Let's close in prayer.
Father, we all have to ask your forgiveness. Your bestowal of grace has far exceeded the effort that any of us have put forth to accomplish your purpose. Father, would you forgive us for our selfishness, our excuses? Forgive us, Father, for being so concerned about ourselves that we have lost sight of what is going to matter for all eternity. Lord, we pray that you would change our thinking and that you would change our actions. You would cause us to be keenly mindful of what you have bestowed individually and also of what you expect. Father, would you help us to match the burdens and the corresponding grace that you have given to be able to discern as well the needs where we can help. Father, would you help us to do it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.